we look at God's word today, if you don't remember anything, remember that song. Remember the words of that song that though the tempter may come, though the tempter may try us, our Savior will hold us fast. Our Savior will hold us fast. If you take your Bibles today and turn with me, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 20 through 24. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one at the end of a row near you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Please just see me after. Um, it would be my pleasure to give you a Bible this morning. But we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through, or verses 20 through 24, a little bit of 17 and 19. But um, today we're going to hone in on uh, some important elements that our brother Eric introduced us to a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to We'd be honing in on what Eric highlighted. I'm so thankful for Eric for highlighting this, that, that God, by his redeeming work in the lives of people, um, he transforms their spiritually dead hearts and, and makes them alive to faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. See, Eric challenged us for, for every believer here today that there is a path, a way, a specific uh, way that we must walk in as believers. We must not walk as the Gentiles do, uh, as unbelievers do, people in our modern culture do, who do not know Christ, but we must walk as people who have been redeemed by and instructed in the Lord. We must walk this way, not in the commendation of Aerosmith, but in the commendation of Paul here in verses 20 through 24. So we walk this way by putting off our old self, being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self. Yet, walking in the manner worthy to which we have been called is not always as simple. It's not always as easy as, as it seems or, or maybe we think that it should be. Not every day, but perhaps from time to time um, on Friday nights or um, on those groggy Tuesday mornings, you've made it through Monday, but you're sitting in the office on Tuesday mornings. Um, maybe sometimes in the middle of the night. Maybe in those first few moments when you come home from work after a long stressful, um, irritating day. You're met with these dark temptations to sin. You're met with these dark temptations to sin that, that, that they, they speak to you and, and you listen to the pleasure sales pitches um, uh, of, of sin and, and you give in to them. I give in to them. We give in to them. And in those moments, those dark moments, the, the path that we are called to live is the, is perceptually blurred. When we sin, uh, the black and white path that we're called to walk is not so black and white anymore. And so as we look at Ephesians 4 this morning, Paul instructs us emphatically that the way we're to live uh, as followers of Jesus is not 50 shades of gray, nor is it the uh, modern cultural colors of the rainbow, but it is actually, in fact, as clear as this black ink is on this white paper. There's one way we're called to live, one specific path that we're called to follow, and it's presupposed on the one who is the true truth, the true way, and the true life, and that person is Jesus Christ. So for those of us who have learned Christ, we're called to walk accordingly. Or in more simple terms, those who have learned Christ are to remember Christ, as Pastor Sean mentioned to us last week. We're to remember Christ and follow his example in every, uh, in every aspect of our lives. 
This is what our passage of Ephesians communicates today. So in just a minute, I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray uh, together. Um, But starting in verse 20, right after Paul uh, speaks to the the life, the the way of living that that Gentile unbelievers are, are living in Ephesus at that time that we're not called to live in, he says this. He says in verse 20, But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on this new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word, to to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you speak through me, God, that you would just speak into our lives, speak into our hearts, Father God. Um, challenge us where we need to be challenged. God, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Help us to live as we walk um, in this path that you've called us to live in true righteousness and in true holiness, Father. We pray these things. We ask them in Jesus Christ's name. For your glory, God, amen. So in our time this morning, I want us to answer three questions. And for the sake of making sermon points, I've taken these questions and made them into sentence statements. So the English major in me kind of freaks out when I have done that. Um, And so I just want you to turn to a neighbor here this morning and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. All right. So when you see it on the screen, it's going to be okay. So number one, we're going to look at this question of the how of our learning Christ. How did we uh, methodologically, how did we learn Christ? How did we come about learning Christ originally? How do we keep learning Christ? Number two, the what of our learning Christ. What's the stuff? What's the the content of our learning him? And then number three, the why of our learning Christ. Why did we originally learn Christ? Why do we keep learning Christ in our lives? So taking the first point then of how we learn Christ, look back with me at verse 20. Paul writes this about the method the, the method that we learned Christ when he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. What's the that here that Paul is referring to? The that is the content of verses 17 through 19, which describes the way that those who uh, don't follow God, the way that those who have rejected God have learned how to live in that type of lifestyle, have, have developed uh, a lifestyle that is full of sin, that is darkened in their understanding, that is uh, futile in their way of thinking. So right from the get-go here, Paul in verse 20 is making a contrast with a specific type of learning and consequentially a specific lifestyle of the first century Gentile unbelievers. Now in light of celebrating our students this morning, I want to uh, bring attention to us of a, a, just one educational teaching pedagogy, one one method that educators use in the classroom uh, to, to gauge student learning, to, to help students improve in their learning. It's called Bloom's Taxonomy. Uh, maybe you've seen this diagram before. Maybe you've used it before. Um, if you haven't, it's up here on the screen behind me. But what you can see in this uh, taxonomy of learning, it gauges the proficiency of learning for students, is at the bottom level, 
Students are taught concepts and facts and ideas, and they're able to remember these things, to regurgitate them for uh, multiple choice uh, tests or quizzes or true and false tests and quizzes or trivia nights um, at the local restaurant. But um, at the next level, we have understanding. Uh, This is a little bit more uh, progressed in learning where students are able to explain the concepts, the facts, ideas that they learned. They're able to uh, maybe give a short answer response to it, have a conversation about their learning, on and on up to creating, uh, producing, where these students are able to learn or they're able to produce something new, innovative from what they have learned. They're able to do this in themselves or outside of themselves based off of the content of their learning. So if we take this diagram, we take this taxonomy of learning and put it back onto the first century unbelieving Gentiles in Ephesus, we could say that in their rejection of God, in their uh, dismissal of God and his commands, they learned a a different lifestyle. They learned a different way of of, uh, morality. They learned a different way of living. Um, And they worked their way through that process, through that development of learning all the way up to the point where they are creating, they're producing out of that rejection of God. Paul says that they were ignorant Uh, They had become ignorant of God. They were alienated from the life of God. They were darkened and futile in their minds. And so they were producing lifestyles based off of the content of their learning to the point where it's affecting not only them, but their community. And Paul says for us, that's not the way that you have learned Christ. Paul says for us that um, there's a different way of our learning Christ. Eric mentioned this a few weeks ago that uh, here in verse 20, Paul uses the word learning in a unique way that, that no other ancient Greek writer had used the word learning. In other writings before, uh, they would use this, this word for learning and connect it to an inanimate object, like an idea, a thing, or philosophy. But Paul doesn't do that here. Paul connects this verb to an animate object, a personal being. And what he is communicating is that um, you you don't just learn Christ, you don't just learn Jesus based off of those bottom levels where you're able to recite facts, but no, you learn Jesus in a different way from knowing him personally that you are able to uh, produce and create out of your life from that learning, from that knowing him personally, you're able to produce fruit. You're able to bear fruit in your life. You're able to produce holiness and righteousness by the power of God working through you. This is what Paul is saying uh, is, the, is the, it's the method in which we learned Christ. We've gone through that taxonomy of learning. We have become proficient, or at least we should have become proficient in our learning Christ originally. And this is the depth of which the Ephesians would have learned Christ. But the how did they uh, come about learning Christ is uh, still a question that we have to answer this morning. And, and Paul addresses that in verse 21. He says, assuming or assuredly that you have heard about him and were taught in him. You see, these Ephesian believers representing both Jewish and Gentile ethnicities had, I, had, I, had either heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Apostle Paul himself uh, when he had visited there a few years earlier or from another disciple. And Paul knows this to be true because Jesus Christ, the object of their learning, is the subject of all apostolic preaching and teaching. He's the subject of all apostolic preaching and teaching. In 2 Corinthians 
4, verse 5, Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Elsewhere, Paul exclaims that the content of his preaching is Christ crucified, raised from the dead. Everywhere he went, everywhere the apostles went, all the other apostles in the New Testament, they went and they proclaimed this one message of Jesus Christ as Lord. We see that in the pages of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. But in addition to all the apostolic teaching and preaching with Jesus as the subject, the object of our learning, all of personal disciple making also has Jesus Christ as the subject. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.2 to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, And what you have heard from me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust then to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. So by example, what we're to see in this text this morning is that whether the Ephesian readers heard the gospel, learned Christ from Paul himself, or from another disciple, they, they learned the same content. They learned Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. They learned those implications that that has for all of life. And there's a side note of instruction for us here this morning that I don't want us to miss um, as we look at the text this morning. And it's this, that other than Pastor Travis, I don't believe any one of us in here this morning is old enough to have originally heard the apostolic preaching and teaching. And so... <laughs> that means that every believer in here heard the gospel from someone else who was faithful to Paul's commendation to Timothy. We heard the gospel from someone who was faithful to entrust the gospel to us. And so what does that mean? That means that each and every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ is a disciple of Christ called to be disciple makers. We're called to be disciple makers, sharing with people the good news of our Lord and Savior everywhere we go. We're called to pray for those who we share with, that they would believe and that God would change their life by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to encourage you, as you're here at Treasure in Christ Church, I just want to encourage you to look for opportunities to be involved in disciple making here, connected to TCC. Throughout the school year, we have KTC, where we're able to be disciples who make disciples amongst the kids here in this church family. A couple weeks from now, we have summer camp coming up. We're able to be disciples who make disciples uh, amongst the kids in our church body, church family, but also the kids in the community around us to make disciples, to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. That's an opportunity. In July, we have backyard Bible clubs for the community kids to, to hear about Jesus Christ. In July, we also have teen youth nights for young men and for young women to learn about Christ through different activities in July. These are things that we can be a part of. We have youth that meets on Sunday mornings. We have college that we can be disciples who are making disciples amongst college students. We have opportunities with international students at NC State and, and, and Muslims here in the, in the RDU area to be disciples who make disciples in these different avenues. But also, we're called to be disciples who make disciples everywhere we go, right? Uh, we have families. We, ha we have jobs that we work in. We, we go to the grocery store. We go to restaurants. We go to stores. Everywhere we go, we're called to be disciples who are making, looking for opportunities to make other 
disciples, sharing with other people the hope of the gospel. And so I just encourage you, um, as, as we look through the rest of uh, the book of Ephesians uh, over the next couple weeks, months, um, as we get to these, these verses in Ephesians that talk about being bold and, and, and looking for opportunities to, to, to share the gospel, I just want to encourage you to look for those opportunities in your own spheres of influence, everywhere, we go, everywhere you go. Have, pray that you would have eyes to, to see and ears to hear uh, in conversations, in places that you go, where you could speak the truth of Jesus Christ in those, uh, in those different scenarios. But the Apostle Paul he gives the Ephesians, and he gives us whom have learned Christ, a, a clarifying statement uh, that, that we're to take with us as we make disciples in our disciple making. And this statement segues us into our second question of understanding. It starts us out with the what of our learning Christ, the content of our learning Christ. Paul says in verse 21, he says this, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, and here's the statement, as the truth is in Jesus. You see, the Ephesians had heard and were taught about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. They were taught his commands. And, and, and they were taught these things with the addition of the fact that all truth is in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. He's the true son of the Father. He's the clarifying truth of the mystery of the Old Testament. He's the full embodiment of truth metaphysically, epistemologically, teleologically, experientially, and historically. But then how do we know that these claims of truth are valid? We know that these claims of truth are valid from verse 21 in what Paul does not write in verse 21. You see, elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, you can look for yourself later, you can look right now if you want to, um, elsewhere in Paul's writings, whenever Paul talks about Jesus, he talks about him as Jesus Christ. He talks about him as Christ or the Lord Jesus. But right here, he's not giving Jesus a title, and we have to ask why. Why does he not give Jesus a title here? And he does this specifically and on purpose as an apologetic for his readers, for us to take a hold of. What Paul is communicating is that the Jesus that these Ephesians learned, the Jesus that we learned is and the Jesus of Scripture is connected to the historical man, Jesus, who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And that's quite the exclamation because it's a big burden of proof to, to be able to, to back up. But Paul says that, um, he says that this is the Jesus of your learning, the Jesus of history. Two weekends ago, I was camping in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, I had the opportunity to go with our SIT international students at NC State to go camping near Asheville. Um, some, some of them hiked. I did not. It's a different story as to why that didn't happen. But these students, they, they, uh, they're, they're coming from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, different philosophical backgrounds, worldviews. Um, they're coming from Hinduism and Jainism uh, backgrounds specifically in terms of religion. And you'll have time to go into those different religious philosophies and the implications of life. But several times throughout the weekend, God was gracious to allow me the opportunity to share the gospel with these students. And I was so thankful to God to be able to do that um, multiple times. And, and every single time that I shared the gospel with these students, 
the same uh, rebuttal came up. The same question came up from them. And, and, and it, it's what I like to refer to as the coexist philosophy. You see, uh, these students, every time I share the gospel, they question me why I was preaching Christ crucified and making these exclusive claims that Christ is the way that we're called to believe, the way that we're called to live here on this earth. Every single person. They questioned me and they, 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 they said this from their perspective. All religions are the same, Matt. And they teach us how to, to live this way. They, they teach us how to live well in the world. Why do you keep telling us that Jesus is the only way? That's what their, uh, their perspective was. And my response to them, my response to their questioning, it was and it still is that, that Jesus... The gospel of Jesus and the exclusive claims of the Christian religion rise and they fall on the historical person of Jesus Christ. I share with them that all of history for 2,000 years shows us, proves true that Jesus of Nazareth lived here on this earth. He's not a mythological entity being that we just simply worship. No, our faith is tied to a historical person. I share with them that that history shows that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived here on this earth, he claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. It's a pretty lofty claim for someone to make, knowing the consequences of that claim. I shared with them that Jesus Christ of history was crucified by the Roman government with the title King of the Jews above him on the cross. That's what history records. And so I share with them that the Jesus of the Bible, the claims of the Jesus of the Bible, we, we have some, some evidence in history that, that Jesus was and, and is a living and true being. And so I share with them then that there's three options of our believing in Jesus. And these three options, they're, they're part of C.S. Lewis's trilemma of belief. And it's that the historical Jesus was either one, a lunatic, he was crazy in his claims, he shouldn't have been making them, and that we're foolish to have believed in them, to keep believing in them. Two, that Jesus is a liar. This is an option of belief, that Jesus is a liar. That everything he said was untrue, that he didn't really rise from the dead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that would mean that we as Christians have no hope if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, if his words are untrue. Or three, we can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is Lord. You see, Jesus even claims in Scripture that he is Lord. He is God. He says in John 8 and John 10 that he is God. He even goes so far as to exclaim in John 14, 6 that he is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has forgiveness of their sins. No one, no one can take the evil out of them, be cleansed from their evil, except through him, except through Jesus Christ. So I did share with him, yes, from the claims of Jesus in the scriptures, there is a plausibility that we could uh, go through one of these options of C.S. Lewis that, that he gives to us. Um, but I share with him that, that even outside of scripture, even outside of the claims of Jesus Christ, there is enough evidence. There is more compelling evidence for the Jesus of history in connection with the Jesus of the scriptures. There's more compelling evidence for him than there is for any ancient historical figure in many disciplines of study. 
I don't have time to go through all of the evidence for you this morning. I just encourage you to read uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. But all, uh, but many different disciplines of study from science and archaeology and medicine and literature and history, they, they show us that the Jesus of the scriptures, the claims that are about, Jesus of, about the Jesus of the scripture match and hold up to the Jesus of history. And, and so for me, I share with them, for me, that, that is good cause. That is good cause. That's good evidence and credibility and viability for me to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. It is good evidence and cause for me to believe, I share with these students, that the Jesus of the scriptures is the Jesus of history, which then means, as Paul says, that all truth is in Jesus. All truth, especially as it relates to salvation and all standards of moral living, they're found in Jesus. They rest in Jesus and his commands to us. This is the the foundational what, this truth in Jesus, the foundational what of our learning Christ. But it's not all that we learned when we learned Christ. Paul says, in addition to the learning the life of Christ, what, he, he teaches us what happens to us as, as we are saved by Christ, as we're redeemed by Christ. In verses 22 through 24, he uses three verbs um, in their infinitive form to communicate the act of completed salvation and its ongoing processes in our life. He says we're to put off the old self. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we're to put on this new self. But I want to focus on just verses 22 and 24 for just a minute, um, because they're related in structure a little bit. But Paul says that these verbs of putting off and putting on are past tense in the sense that they were completed in our act of salvation. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he speaks uh, to to these two actions in in Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Just looking at the first one with, with me right now, it says in Colossians 3, 9, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So when unbelievers repent of their sins, when they turn from their sins by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, knowingly or not, they're choosing to put off their old self. They're saying, uh, whether they recognize it or not, they're saying, I want no more of my old way of living. I want no more of that. I've had enough of that. I've tasted and seen that Jesus is good and, and, and I want to follow Jesus. This has happened for every believer here today. It is a completed action. Simultaneously, when, when unbelievers, when they're turning from their sin, they're also saying that, that they have seen Jesus and they want Jesus. They're saying that they want to follow Jesus. And so what happens is justified sinners are, are, are say, uh, sinners are justified by God. They are saved by God and they receive from God his spirit to indwell in them. And what happens when the spirit comes and dwells in, uh, in believers then is that they are created new. They are made into a new creation. They're given a new identity, which is really a restored identity from the, their original makeup. They're given this new identity that is to be reflective of the likeness of God, who is truly righteous and is truly holy. Yet, with this in mind, right, at the same time, Paul here in verses 22 and 24, he communicates to us with this strong command language. He's communicating to us that, yes, 
there are these realities that have happened. You have already put off the old self. You have been given a new identity. You've put on the new self, yet you're to continue in these actions. What Paul's applying here is the biblical theme of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to earth, he, he, he preached and he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. That the kingdom of God was at hand. And so what that meant is that aspects and truths of the kingdom of God began. They began to be, uh, to be lived out, to be fulfilled in uh, that time, in our time. Aspects and truths that hold true. Yet also at the same time with the kingdom of God, there's this understanding of already, not yet, where there are certain truths, there are certain aspects that have not been fulfilled, they have not been completed. And that's what Paul is referring to here. We have already, yes, put off our old selves. We have already been uh, created new and put on the new self uh, of our new identity in Christ. But we're to keep on doing these things because we're not in heaven yet. We do live in a fallen world. We do uh, live in, a f- in, in flesh that is cursed by sin still. And we're met with temptations to sin each and every day. So for the Ephesians, what Paul is communicating here is that they had to, to actively, they had to consciously choose to see their temptations, to, to live like their former manner of life, to see the temptations, to live like the world around them. And they had to put those things off. They had to cast those things aside. And simultaneously, as they saw those temptations, they had to consciously, the way to, to put that off and be successful in that is they had to consciously dwell on Christ. They had to consciously uh, choose to think about the Lord whom had saved them, what they had learned in Christ. They had to consciously choose to think on these things. They had to dwell on him. That is the, that is the, uh, the daily uh, command for the Ephesians to put off and to put on. And, and similarly, for every believer here today, the command holds true. You see, our old self, yes, has been put off in Christ. We have received from Christ a new identity, and that's good news. But we are called as believers to walk in this way of pursuing righteousness and holiness all throughout our life. We're called to look at our temptations to stare them down, and we're called to take them captive and to put them off aside. Now, um, going off a little off script here, I just, I just want to encourage us this morning. Um, God was gracious to wake me up around 2.40 this morning just to remind me of this. Um, just reminded me, just sweetly, gently, that that's, what we're talking about is a struggle. What we're talking about is hard. Some days it's easy to fight sin. Some days it's easy to see those temptations and cast them off. Some days it's really hard and it's challenging. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a believer here today, the, the truth is, is that in Christ, you've already been forgiven. You've already been forgiven. So when you do struggle, when you do fail in these, uh, these things of walking in this true path of righteousness and holiness, I want you to know there's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no condemnation coming from God because God has already forgiven you in Christ. And that is amazing. And that is true. And, and from that, from that truth, Paul, Paul gives us hope and he gives us victory in this battle that we can fight against sin in our lives. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 
that no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what might this look like in a 21st century American context? And on a real and personal level, if we're going to get real, and if we're being true to Scripture, this means saying no to watching Game of Thrones because of its explicit content. It means to, uh, to not binge play Fortnite or the latest hit game or binge watch Netflix to the neglect of responsibilities to family or self. It means fighting for both the right to life for the unborn child in the womb and the flourishing of life of those outside of the womb, all to uphold the Imago Dei identity of every human being from conception to death. It means lovingly and uncondition- loving unconditionally the person born with the same Imago Dei identity, either struggling with or actively pursuing same-sex attraction while unwaveringly showing them their sin and calling them to repentance. It means showing compassion to, listening to, empathizing with, and mourning with those of another ethnicity when someone who has the same skin color of them is impacted by the reality of or even the perceived reality of racism, especially when that reality leads to the death or the incarceration of someone who looks like them. Putting off the old and putting on the new self in Christ means doing this not in disregard of looking at the facts, but in leading with and leading primarily in the biblical, biblical command to mourn with those who mourn with beloved and compassionate hearts for as long as it is necessary. Putting off the old self and putting, off, putting on the new, though, also means that not vilifying and demonizing those who are also created in the image of God who are not as understanding or as willing to walk alongside of those impacted by these realities in their very true pain. It means leading in prayer for these image bearers that God would soften their hearts and would stir up in them a a holy and a true, uh, uh, just a holy, true concern for righteousness and justice in their lives. Putting off the old self and putting on The new means treasuring Christ over and above every addiction, even caffeine, and being willing and humble enough to seek professional help to overcome those addictions. It means at work, working for the glory of God. It means at home, loving one another as Christ loved the church. In parenting, it means parenting in the Lord, not provoking children to anger. It means serving neighbors or roommates with unconditional love, serving the, the community in which believers live in faithfully, stewarding their gifts that God has given them to share the gospel with all ethnicities, with all nations in all places and spaces until they have heard. This process of putting off and putting on in our lives is part of our sanctification and it's to be a daily routine. And Paul communicates that it's supposed to be something that we actively are pursuing each day with his terminology in verses 22 and 24. See, Paul specifically uses words that communicate the action of putting off old, dirty, smelly clothes and putting on new, clean garments of clothes. This is what we're doing in Christ. We're putting off the old self. We're putting on new, cleansed, righteous, pursuing holiness selves each and every day. 
But Paul wants us to know that, we're, that we don't go through this process alone. We don't go through this daily sanctification process alone. No, we have help. Look back at verse 23 with me. Paul says, in our learning Christ, we learn that we, were, that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. To be successful in walking in Christ, then it's essential that we be renewed. And, and, and not renewal in the sense of a new age holistic philosophy because we can't produce renewal in and of ourselves. No, uh, Paul communicates here that this renewal process is something that we as believers are actually passive in, uh, in terms of, of acting. Uh, we are passive because the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is the one who is inwardly, synonymously, synonymous to uh, the spirit of our minds. Inwardly, the Holy Spirit is working in us, moving in us, uh, cleansing us, renewing us moment by moment. And as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, Every single moment we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. This is the result of the Holy Spirit passively working in us. However, uh, we, this, this renewal process is kind of like a both and um, type of process. The Spirit of God passively works in us in tandem with our active pursuit of God. Pastor Sean is, uh, often quotes this that, that biblical change is more about who you pursue than about what you avoid. And, and I say amen to that here in terms of our active pursuit of God. To be cleansed, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and inwardly, in tandem with the Holy Spirit, we have to be actively pursuing the Lord in, in, in every um, aspect of our life. So our brother Eric mentioned this a few weeks ago. What does it look like to pursue God? It, it looks like dwelling on Christ constantly reflecting on, remembering what we've learned in Christ on a day-to-day basis. It means spending time with the Lord, reading his word, sitting under his word, the teaching of God, memorizing it, letting it sit and apply to our lives. It means in prayer that we spend time with the Lord in prayer. Remember, we learned a person, not an idea or a thing. We learned a person, Jesus Christ. So we develop this relationship with Jesus Christ by spending time with him in prayer. We, we are learning to be with him. And as we, as we do these things, as we do these things, as we, uh, as we actively pursue God, it has implications on us personally, and it has implications on us communally um, as believers and really as we go out into the world. And this leads us to the, the last point, our last question this morning, the why of our learning Christ. Why did we originally learn Christ? Why do we keep learning Christ? According to Ephesians 1 through 3, which we've already looked at um, as a church, God in Christ chose us and saved us in this grand, uh, in this time in the grand narrative of history. He chose us and saved us when simply put, he could not have. He could not have saved us. In Christ, then, the wrath of our holy and righteous God against us was satisfied. Our enmity with God was reversed. Our guilt before him was was covered. Our punishment, the punishment that we deserve for our temporal and eternal sins, was served. We learned Christ initially because of God's gracious and merciful kindness and love towards us. We keep learning Christ out of a humble and grateful heart to him. 
we then learn Christ? Because obedience to what we learn results in untethered unity within the local church and amongst all believers universally. It also results in unconditional and sacrificial love for both the community of believers and those outside of the faith. This is what the rest of the book of Ephesians talks about, that, that when we are being obedient to what we've learned in Christ, it results then in, in being able to speak to our neighbor with a kind and true word. It, means, it, it leads to forgiving one another. It leads to loving one another. It leads to not letting the anger, not letting the sun set on our anger. It's what it says um, in the passage after our passage today, um, which we'll look at next week. It, it, it talks about walking in love, being obedient to learning Christ means walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom everywhere we go. Paul essentially claims that learning Christ has implications for, for us communally in every single facet of life. But also learning Christ has implications, lastly, on our relationship to ourselves. See, when we learn Christ, we are now able to see our sin clearly. We've been released from the bondage of sin so we can see those temptations to sin clearly. And we can live holy and set apart as First Peter, uh, as Peter says in First Peter 1.15, that we can be holy because God is holy. With the restored image as new creations, we can pursue righteous living. We can pursue justice. We can pursue the things of God. This is, that's how we were meant to originally live. And in Christ now, we can now live those things. And so just in closing, I want to raise this idea for us to dwell on, for us to move forward from. Uh, I get it from this book I just started reading. It's called The Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah. In this book, he, he, he categorizes proclaimed Christians, people who claim to be Christians, into two camps. He, he says, on one side, you're a Jesus admirer. On the other side, you are, or, or the other camp is a Jesus follower. And those who are Jesus admirers, going back to that, that, that proficiency level of learning that I showed us a minute ago, they would be the ones who could remember facts about Jesus. They could recite facts about Jesus. They could maybe explain Jesus. But at best, they're just Jesus admirers, and, and their understanding, their learning of Jesus has no implications for their life. They're not transformed by their learning of Jesus. But over here, as Jesus followers, people who are Jesus followers have gone through that, that proficiency of learning. They, they, they're able to, to live out of their, the content in which they learned. In their lives, they're reflective of bearing fruit and, and pursuing righteousness and holiness. I believe many of us here today are Jesus followers. But at the same time, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that, that there is this struggle in the human life. There's a struggle that we live in to follow Jesus consistently, to, to walk on this path of righteousness and holiness uh, consistently every single day. And so in just a moment, when we go to the Lord's Supper, when we take, take the Lord's Supper, um, I just want to pray a prayer over us who are Jesus followers this morning, that God would be near to us, that God in his supernatural, um, sovereign, uh, gracious strength would would supply that to us to daily be able to live in the reality of which we've already learned, to put off our old selves and to put on our new selves, being 
renewed in the spirit of our minds. I just want to pray that over us in a minute. Um, and as you go and take the Lord's Supper, I just want you to remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the why of your learning Christ. And, and, and out of your remembering, I want to encourage you to live uh, as we go forward from here today in that learning. But also, um, as we go to the Lord's Supper here in, in a minute, um, there also may be some Jesus admirers in here, or, or, or maybe some people who are curious about Jesus, or, um, or maybe you just are hearing about Jesus right now. And, and, and I just want to encourage you that as we go to the Lord's Supper this morning, it's not for you to take, and I want to encourage you not to take it. But the time for you is for you. The time this morning is for you to take, to, to call out to Jesus. Because unlike the first century Ephesians, they didn't understand this. But I'm here to tell you today that Jesus wants to know you. And he wants to be known by you. If you're a Jesus admirer, if you're someone who's curious about Jesus or just hearing about Jesus, he wants to know you personally. And out of knowing you, he wants to see your life just do a a, three, a 180. He wants to see you be transformed by the spirit that he promises to you. And so the time for you this morning as we go to the Lord's Supper is for you to take that God, uh, that just to call out to God right where you're at and just proclaim to him just silently in a conversation like you would to a friend that, that you uh, want to know more about this Jesus. You want to, to know more about Jesus. You may even want to follow Jesus in faith and confessing to him that you need him to save you from your sins. And so these are two things um, that we're going to do as we go to the Lord's Supper this morning, but I just want to take a minute to pray for us. So if you would pray with me, um, and then we will go to the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are um, just actively at work in our lives. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would continue to transform us, move us from one degree of glory to another on up until the moment that we meet you face to face in heaven. But Lord, I just pray that you would, for those of us who follow you, who follow Jesus, that we would be strengthened by your grace, by your might, by your power to daily actively see our temptations to sin, cast them off, put off our old self with its former manner of life, and to put on the new self, to live in the reality that we are new creations. We have a restored identity. And it's a restored identity after your likeness, God, and true righteousness and holiness. I just pray that we would pursue that, those things. And Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, I just pray, Lord, that, that you would be near to them right now. I pray, God, that you would uh, speak to them gently. God, let them know that you want to know them personally, that you want to be known by them personally. I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, God, that they would call out to you, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would believe in you, that you are who you say that you are. Lord, Scripture and history tell us that. And Lord, I just pray this all, um, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.